one thing for biblical creationists to pound on the problems with evolution, but it's so much more fun when evolutionists do it. Today we're discussing an expose of the evolution industry by evolutionists themselves. Stick around. Get ready for faith-encouraging information starting right now. And for even more, visit creation.com. Welcome to Creation Magazine Live. My name is Richard Fangrad. And I'm Matt Bondi. Now, imagine inviting the world's 16 best evolutionist minds, the elite, the top of the heap, the creme de la creme, together to advance evolutionary theory. But instead, they look at each other and say, we don't know how evolution works. (laughs) Well, that's basically what happened. Uh, The invitation to the conference read, we are grappling with the increasing feeling that we just don't have the theoretical and analytical tools necessary to make sense of bewildering diversity and complexity of living organisms. Yeah, one of the scientists in attendance said, basically, I don't think anybody knows how evolution works. (laughs) And there are heaps more statements like this that that many of you will find shocking coming out of evolutionist mouths. Okay, in the next half hour, we'll summarize what happened at this incredible meeting and draw some conclusions. It's evolutionists bashing evolution. It is, yeah. Questioning the mechanism that most people have been taught were the causes for the diversity of life on Earth. Now, these quotes are found in a book that kind of summarizes this invitation-only symposium held at Altenburg, Austria in July 2008, attended by 16 evolutionary scientists, and they were called the Altenburg 16. Now, the author, Susan Mazur, is not a creationist, but she asked pointed questions of many evolutionary scientists, including some not at this meeting, and gives lengthy transcripts of their responses along with with little biographies and observations about their appearance and habits and hobbies and that kind of thing. Yeah, and there were uh, some very revealing statements. Uh, For example, she writes, The Altenberg 16 recognized that the theory of evolution, which most practicing biologists accept and which is taught in classrooms today, is inadequate in explaining our existence. A wave of scientists now questions natural selection's role, though fewer will publicly admit it. Evolutionary science is as much about the posturing, salesmanship, stonewalling, and bullying that goes on (laughs) as it is about actual scientific theory. Bullying, yeah. I thought even kids (laughs) in the playground were were aware that that was wrong. Yeah, well, maybe some evolutionary scientists didn't get the memo. (laughs) Now, a little further on we read, in short... It's a modern-day quest for the Holy Grail, but with few nights. At a time that calls for scientific vision, scientific inquiry has been hijacked by an industry of greed with evolution books hyped like snake oil at a carnival. (laughs) Ouch! (laughs) Okay, what was going on at that meeting uh, to warrant comments like this? (laughs) Well, we'll we'll share some more later, but uh, one of the main concerns can be summarized uh, by this statement alone. Scientists agree that natural selection can occur, but the scientific community also knows that natural selection has little to do with the long-term changes in populations. Okay, now that likely surprises many of you, right? I mean, the book openly acknowledges the inadequacy of explaining evolution via natural selection. In other words, genetic mutations and recombination plus various forms of selection are not sufficient to explain the diversity of life. And it documents this point with statements from leading evolutionary scientists. Yeah, for example, uh, one of the scientists said, Oh, sure, natural selection's been demonstrated. The interesting point, however, 
is that it has rarely, if ever, been demonstrated to have anything to do with evolution in the sense of long-term changes in populations. Summing up, we can see that the import of Darwinian theory of evolution is just unexplainable caprice from the top to bottom. What evolves is just what uh, happens to happen. It happens to happen. <laughs> Another one said, Do I think natural selection should be relegated to a less important role in the discussion of evolution? Yes, I do. And Lynn Margillis said, At that meeting, Francisco Ayala agreed with me when I stated that this doctrinaire neo-Darwinism is dead. He was a practitioner of neo-Darwinism, but advances in molecular genetics, evolution, ecology, biochemistry, and other news had led him to agree that neo-Darwinism is now dead. Yeah, astounding. <laughs> yeah, so neo-Darwinism, by the way, it is Darwin's theory of uh, evolution by natural selection plus Gregor Mendel's theory of genetics. Yeah. Now, Darwin didn't know about genetics when he published in 1859 because Mendel first published seven years later in 1866. Right, yeah, referring to Lynn Margulis, the author Susan Mazur wrote... She sees natural selection as neither the source of heritable novelty nor the entire evolutionary process and has pronounced neo-Darwinism dead since there's no adequate evidence in the literature that random mutations result in new species. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, those are extremely strong statements. Yes. <laughs> and just a reminder, these are evolutionists, not creationists right. saying this. So, you know, these evolutionary scientists clearly have huge doubts about what many of us have been taught are the mechanisms that drive evolution. Yes, yeah. One scientist said, The point is, however, that an organism can be modified and refined by natural selection, but that is not the way new species and new classes and new phyla originated. <laughs> and you know what? We agree. Yes, we agree. <laughs> natural selection does modify organisms, but cannot account for their origin. Yeah, the origin of species, the origin of all life, it requires a creator. It does. Now, the book identifies uh, some areas where natural selection is not a sufficient explanation, but discusses those only uh, briefly and superficially, and we can expand on that a little. But first, I think we should probably define some terms. Yeah, yeah okay, all right. Uh, natural selection is the idea that, given the variety in a group of living things, some of them will be better at overcoming environmental stresses than others. The more fit will leave more offspring than those that are less fit. Right. Now, this idea was not invented by Darwin. <laughs> no. Many people wrote on it before him, the most prominent being creationist Edward Blythe. Yeah, now here's a, a simple example. Um, here are some trees with a mix of genes for the length of the roots. If that population is exposed to generations of very dry weather, the ones most likely to survive are obviously the ones with longer roots that get down deep into the water table. Uh, so the one on the left side survives. Uh, the one with the short roots doesn't, and the two with the medium roots, well, you know, they might survive. Yeah, so the genes, the genetic instructions for shorter roots are less likely to get passed on. After a number of generations, if the dry weather continues, none of these plants will have the genes for short roots. Right. They'll all be of the long root type. And since all the plants now have long roots, they're now better adapted to dry conditions than their forebears were. That's natural selection. That's natural selection. Sort of. Yeah, and of course, it's an important part of the creation model. Always has been. Uh, God has engineered living things to be able to adapt to changing climates without going extinct at the slightest change, you know? And, and of course, that's just good engineering. It is, yeah. Uh, but it can't account for the origin of living right. things. And the Altenberg 16 know that. 
So what are some areas where natural selection doesn't help evolution? Well, the origin of life, obviously. Yeah, right. Natural selection can't uh, operate until after life has begun. Yes. <laughs> uh, yet modern science has revealed breathtaking complexity of the simplest known self-reproducing life forms. Yes, and to get around this major problem, evolutionists propose that life originally came from life forms unlike any we see today. Mm. Now, they have zero evidence of these, but, well, there has to be some step between a pool of chemicals on the ancient Earth and life, right? I mean, it, it, it can't be that evolution itself might be wrong, could oh, it? No, you know, no, 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 never. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they won't give up on the overall concept that we must have, uh, you know, got here without a God. Yeah, yes, yeah. Uh, in addition, evolutionists are now using terms like self-assembly and self-organization Ooh. and, uh, you know, associated, associated terms like plasticity. There's a good one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Anything but a creator God, right? right? That's yeah. the thing. Uh, another problem is in the area of the origin of higher taxa, especially the origin of phyla and classes. According to evolutionists themselves, the origin of all, all the animal phyla occurred within, or, or very near, a brief geological period, a, a twinkling of an eye in, in the deep time scenario known as the Cambrian Explosion. Yeah, famous evolutionist Stephen Jay Gould noted that the fossil sequence shows that the most uh, different biological designs tend to show up first. Now, yes. this uh, contradicts the expectations of Darwinism and, and neo-Darwinism, uh, which expects slow, little changes that over time will result in large differences. Later, yeah. yeah. Darwinism expects uh, the most different designs to show up last, not first. Yes, uh, and, but it gets even worse. Recent discoveries in genetics are compounding the problem. Developmental biologists have observed a small set of genes coordinating the development of body plans. And these are present across the multicellular kingdom in the various phyla and classes. Evolutionists call this the developmental genetic toolkit. Mm. So according to evolutionary thinking, uh, this complex toolkit must have originated in some common ancestor to all the phyla. Right. Uh, so that common ancestor must have existed before the first appearance of these phyla or you know, in other words, prior to the Cambrian explosion. Yes. So the common ancestor, which, by the way, hasn't been identified, must have existed in the pre-Cambrian prior to the origin of multicellular life. Yeah. In other words, the genes that control body plans must have originated when there were no bodies. <laughs> yeah. And the genes that control embryological development had to have originated when there were no embryos. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. <laughs> anyway, in this book, uh, Stuart Newman says... At the point when the modern animal body plans first emerged half a billion years ago, just about all the genes that are used in modern organisms to make the embryos were already there. They had evolved in the single cell world, but they weren't doing embryogenesis. Yeah, and that's the third area where the Altenberg 16 recognized a problem with natural selection. It doesn't know the future. Yeah, natural selection can't look ahead and, and create no. an embryological you know, toolkit for some future use. Uh, it can't develop the tools for making multicellular bodies when there are no multicellular bodies. Exactly. Natural selection is insufficient. So once again, evolutionists are appealing to mechanisms of self-assembly and self-organization and things like that. <laughs> None of this is a, a surprise to Bible-believing scientists, right? Right. I mean, creationists have always known that natural selection and the genetic changes that have been observed are incapable of producing the diversity of life that we see. That's right. We are, however, well aware of the preserving effect that natural selection has on groups of living things, enabling them to, you know, adapt to the changing environments. 
Yeah. Now, the Altenberg 16, you know, they're really just mostly catching up to what creationists have always said. Yeah, I totally agree. But, but, but don't you think that that meeting was helpful to the evolutionists? Mm. Or, or at least that it could be helpful. I mean, right. they're, they're, they're coming to grips with the hard facts that the foundations of evolutionary biology that are, that are taught so forcefully to students <laughs> just don't work. Yeah, but, the, you know, there's nothing there to replace it. Well, that's the problem, yeah. If natural selection and mutations aren't sufficient to drive evolution, and that's what they're admitting, then evolution's dead. Right. Ah, but wait. Now they're using terms like self-assembly and self-organization. Well, if these terms sound fishy to you, uh, <laughs> you're not the only one. The Altenberg 16 actually had issues with them, too. Yeah, okay. Uh, the, the first big one is, where are the experiments demonstrating self-organization? One of the scientists said, self-organization is, of course, an important component, but not much has been discovered beyond generalities. The immense amount of intricate detail that geneticists and developmentalists have been discovering over the years dwarfs general metaphors like auto-evolution and even self-organization. Yeah, and the second problem is that they don't seem to know how to test these or even how to think about it. Yeah. Uh, Stuart yeah. Kaufman said, I think self-organization is part of an alternative to natural selection. Uh, let me try to frame it for you. In fact, it's a huge debate. The truth is that we don't know how to think about it. We don't it. know how to think about it. And, and Walter Remind, the scientist who did the review of the Altenberg 16 book, he added this comment. Due to this two-fold scientific failure... These mechanisms can kindly be called hyperbole, or just plain hype, not science. These do not meet the requirements for science that evolutionists endorsed in all their court cases. But this deficiency is not discussed in the book. <laughs> yeah, and he goes on to make the observation that the book doesn't suggest uh, the need for evolutionary explanations to be testable. <laughs> you know, but evolutionists demand that creationist theories be tested. Yeah, double standard much? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, yes, uh, you know, not to let them off too easily, but uh, evolutionists do have serious challenges. Uh, yes, you yes. know, the ones at this conference, they accept uh, these two things. One, they take evolution as an unshakable fact, and two, they admit that science provides powerful evidence against many evolutionary explanations. Right. So, you know, just think about this for a minute. If you know that evolution happened and you're not willing to entertain the possibility of a creator god, uh, but maintain that we exist at the end of a long chain of processes guided only by purely natural processes over billions of years, but then also come to realize that the natural processes that have been put forth to explain evolution aren't supported by science, well, you know, where do you go from there? Where do you go? It, it becomes a grasping at straws, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. They have to focus on whatever evolutionary explanations they can imagine, no matter how flaky or unscientific they are. Yeah, yeah, and we'll mention uh, some of those in a minute, but... Let me add this. You know, creationists are often mocked for believing that God created. And we'll freely admit that it is a faith position. I mean, right. no yes. one was there to see God create. Sure. Uh, you know, we take it on faith. But the evolutionist is in the same position here. I mean, no evolutionist was around, you know, millions of years ago to see life evolve from non-life. Right. Or the circumstance that led to the Cambrian explosion or the true cause of their version of dinosaur extinction. You yes. know, stuff like that. Yeah. And so they exercise faith, too. And, and, of course, no one wants to have a blind faith. We all want to believe things that are supported by evidence right. so that our beliefs are reasonable, reasonable faith, right? Yeah. The question then becomes, which faith is more reasonable? Ah, okay, so both creation and evolution would leave clues that we ought to be able to see today, which right. could then shore up belief in one or the other. You know, on the creation side, 
especially over you know, the last four decades or so, where research has really piled up. Uh, today, there are mountains of evidence that support a supernatural origin for the universe and a global flood, as the Bible describes. Yes, yeah. And, and here we have the Altenberg 16 saying that the traditional evolutionary explanations just don't cut it. So for them, it becomes a frantic search to find any explanation. They're leaving no stone unturned, so to speak, in their quest to figure out origins. <laughs> and actually, actually, they're not really doing that because they'll only consider naturalistic explanations, right? So they're not really considering all the options then, are they? Yeah, no, so. not really. Uh, you know, we said before that science shows that naturalistic explanations, um, all of them currently proposed, are not capable of making the universe that we see. Right. The Altenberg 16 are catching up with creationists and what we've been saying all along. <laughs> but when they only investigate naturalistic explanations, they'll never find the answer if the universe originated supernaturally. Yeah. So what are they proposing? Well, okay. Uh, one of them is called convergence or parallel evolution. Convergence is meant to be the explanation for similarities that cannot be explained by common ancestry. For example, evolutionists claim that vision arose more than 40 separate times. And even that, 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 like a complex eye like yours with a lens and retina originated at least five separate times wow. because it's found separately in vertebrates and cephalopods, that's like octopus and squid, in annelid worms, in jellyfish, and in spiders. Yeah, these claims haven't been remotely demonstrated experimentally, by no. the way. <laughs> these are complex designs, and their similarity cannot be explained by common descent or by atavism, that's the, the masking and later unmasking of genetic traits. Um, or by sideways transposition of traits from one lineage to another by gene transfer, for example. Yeah, yeah the, the thing is, that leaves the evolutionist with the least easy, the least plausible right. explanation of the situation. Convergence. Convergence. The, the, the independent origin of similar biological, biological complexities. So things that have no common ancestor just happen to look the same. <laughs> That's hard to believe. <laughs> that is hard to believe. You know, it's like trying to believe that two artists painted a series of almost identical paintings without reference to one another. Yeah. You know, yeah. or that, uh, you know, VW and Porsche were, you know, the similarities, they're not due to having the same common designer. Yep. Yep. Convergences are as anti-evolutionary as they can be. <laughs> but ironically, the more profound the anti-evolutionary evidence, the more the evolutionist seems to see it as evidence for the incredible power of, of, of some evolutionary mechanism. You know, they interpret convergence as evidence for the incredible power of natural selection. <laughs> Look what it's done. Yeah. Amazing. Okay, another example. Long ago, uh, evolutionists would try to identify ancestors and establish how modern life originated from them. Right. Uh, you know, they fail, though, because uh, clear-cut ancestors and lineages just aren't there. They're not there. Uh, so yeah. starting in the mid-70s, evolutionists tried to reformulate the theory to have no need for ancestors. Uh, the cladistic uh, mythology, actually it's methodology, but I should say mythology. Mythology? Yeah, that it rose to prominence uh, because it never really identifies real ancestors. And then punctuated equilibria, that theory, uh, rose to prominence, mostly because it attempts yeah. to explain away the central, you know, this central failure of Darwinism. Yeah, so evolutionists began to acknowledge three anti-evolutionary patterns in the fossil record. Number one, the absence of change through the, through the existence of a fossil species, or stasis, things stay the same in the fossil record. Two, the existence of large morphological gaps between life forms. In other words, large differences in form and structure. So it's really the absence of uh, gradualism. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould famously called this the trade secret of paleontology. That's right, yeah. And number three, the absence of clear-cut ancestors and clear-cut lineages. The expected transitional forms just aren't there. Mm -hmm. 
evolutionists use these anti-evolutionary evidences taken together with the fact of evolution as evidence for a new theory of evolution, punctuated equilibrium. Yes, items one and two were used as evidence for rapid evolution at the origin of a new species, and item three gives the theory much of its distinctive character. According to the theory, evolution occurs mostly at speciation, in sudden rapid births, and scrambles any lingering appearance of clear-cut ancestors and clear-cut lineage, making it hard to identify ancestors. <laughs> How convenient. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, today evolution has embraced this theory despite its lack of experimental demonstration, lack of scientific testability. However, there is another theory that also explains those three points. Really? Yeah, it's called supernatural creation in a global flood. <laughs> but no, can't, can't no. have that. You know, if, you're, if you're completely convinced that there's no creator God, then you have to come up with wild theories. That's right. Another topic discussed at the Altenburg 16 conference was that of censorship. Yes. The author of the book, Susan Mazur, calls attention to the censorship that exists against non-Darwinian ideas. Of course, she opposes that censorship, and, and rightly so. Right, yeah, yeah. She says... The consensus of the evolution pack, in other words, the science blogs, still seems to be that if an idea doesn't fit in with Darwinism and Neo-Darwinism, keep it out. Hmm. That's amazing. Yeah, well, what's yeah. more amazing is the evolutionist self-censorship. Yeah. Uh, they yeah. want to keep the new proposed mechanisms like self-organization out of the discussion. Yeah. But continue to teach what they agree doesn't work. I mean, natural selection and mutations as the mechanism for evolution. Yeah. Uh, here's a revealing quote from Stuart Newman. He says, people are concerned that if they open up the door to non-Darwinian mechanisms, then they're going to allow creationists to slip through the door as well. <laughs> Very interesting, right? They're afraid that if you allow theories that challenge Darwinian evolution, and he agrees that self-organization does challenge it, right. then that could open the door to other challenges to Darwinian evolution. I don't see a <laughs> no, problem, do fantastic. you? Fantastic. <laughs> Uh, and uh, evolutionists are, again, blaming creationists for keeping evolutionists silent. Yes. <laughs> Another scientist said that non-Darwinian evolutionists fear that the tenets of intelligent design and the creationists, people I hate as much as they do, mm -hmm. will rejoice and quote them as being on their side. They really fear that, so they are prudent, some in good faith, some for calculated fear of being cast out of the scientific community. And, well, I, I guess they have good reason to fear, right? Because so. when a scientist, regardless of their position on origins, finds evidence against evolution, of course we're going to want to share it, sure. right? Let's get the truth out there. Absolutely. But we, we don't pretend that every evolutionist who argues against evolution is suddenly a creationist. He sees, no. seems, seems to suggest that there, right? Right, right. You know, in this past half hour, nowhere did we suggest that the Altenberg 16 or the others that were interviewed are now creationists. Right, yeah. Hey, there are more details in Walter Mines' book review that we didn't have time to cover today. Uh, but you can access those at creation.com slash review dash Altenberg dash 16. Well, the good news is that unlike what's happening with evolution, there's massive amount of scientific and historical support for creation by God and yes. the global flood. That's right, yeah. God is responsible for the diversity of life and the reason why living things have similar structures, they had the same creator. And the flood is responsible for most of the fossil record, which explains why evolutionists have such a hard time trying to understand it within an evolutionary framework. That's right. Hey, one of the best things that you can do to get more of this type of information is subscribe to Creation Magazine. Yes, yeah, you can view a free copy, on, a digital copy online. Go to creation.com slash freemag. 
You can flip through it there online, sample copy. If you like it, subscribe. It goes out to over like 100 countries around the world. It's been going now for more than 40 years. Yeah, amazing. And a wonder, lots of information like we talk about on Creation Magazine Live. So I guess lots that's the, the season. That's, that's season eight. So uh, we won't see you next week. We'll see you next year. And remember, Christianity is an evidence-based faith. And science supports scripture. You've been listening to the podcast version of Creation Magazine Live, produced by Creation Ministries International. With offices internationally and more scientists on staff than any Christian ministry, you can find loads of faith-supporting articles on our massive website, creation.com. Check it out.